Let's now turn in our Bibles once again to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, as we continue working our way through Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 21. Luke 2, beginning with verse 21. Bow with me in prayer. Our Father, with humility and reverence, we now bow before your sacred word and ask that you will open our hearts as your people to receive this word, which is inerrant in the whole and in the part. It is the word of God. Help us, as Calvin said, to be docile under its contents. That is to say, we do not fight against it. We desire to know you in this word and to fellowship with you in this word and to live according to this word. And so teach our hearts and give to us a deeper, deeper gratitude for what you have done for us through the cross of our Savior. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that that Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and who inspired this book will also be at work in the hearts of lost people who may be among us today, that they spiritually may be raised in Christ, that having come here lost, they would leave here saved and can join in with your people in what it really means to know you and to worship you and to be glad in heart because of the good news that we find in this text and all through your word. These things we humbly ask in the name of the only mediator between God and man, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Will you please stand with your copy of God's Word in your hand? Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 21 through verse 40. This is the Word of God. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, 
and the sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. That has been the theme of the passages that we have been expounding and looking at together during this Christmas season. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came into the world to redeem us from our hell-deserving sins. But now the text adds testimony, witnesses to the Savior's birth and the greatness of his coming and what it means that he will be the Redeemer. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall a thing be established, and the Lord certainly raised up witnesses to Jesus in this passage. And so we want to examine these witnesses and what they have to tell us about who Jesus is and what he came to do. But we begin, first of all, with this. This is first. Jesus circumcised and named. Jesus circumcised and named. Jewish parents, you will remember, presented their male children for circumcision on the eighth day. You can read about that commandment in Genesis 17. It was commanded to Abraham and for his children after him. Or you can read about it in Leviticus chapter 12 or in other places in the Old Testament. But as this child is about to be circumcised in this text, let's think for a moment of the significance of circumcision. Remember that circumcision was a sign of the covenant of grace that is made with Abraham and his children. Circumcision signified the need for cleansing from sin and union and communion with the Lord. It pointed out that these children were sinners, that in the line of election, God would save from sin. And so we need to understand that what is fundamental to circumcision is the understanding that children are born in sin and that they are in need of a Redeemer. Now, sometimes we point out that baptism means precisely the same thing as does circumcision. Even though now the form of the sacrament is changed, the meaning is the same. I remember hearing John Gerstner say years ago that he went to preach in a certain church and he was expected to baptize an infant. And as he came to the baptism, the elders handed him a white rose and they wanted him to hand the white rose to the family just prior to the baptism. Dr. Gerstner said, why the white rose? And they said, well, it represents innocence. He said, innocence? What baptism points us to is our need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit. 
Our children are not born innocently. They are dead in trespasses and sins. Original sin is what the Bible teaches. Now, with that background and understanding of circumcision, why is Jesus circumcised? He was not a sinner. He was God in the flesh. Hebrews 9.14, he offered himself without spot to God. Hebrews 7.26, he was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. 1 Peter 2.22, he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. 1 Peter 1.19, he was a lamb without blemish and without spot. So why was Jesus circumcised? Well, there is a great lesson for us here, a precious truth for us to understand. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was our representative, and as such, he identified with us. He came under the law for us, this child that was born in Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary. Galatians 4.4 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, so that we might receive the adoption of sons. And so he obeyed, but also he paid the penalty of the broken law. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Did you notice how many times the law of the Lord is referenced in the passage that we read together this morning? You find it in verse 22, in verse 23, in verse 24, in verse 27, in verse 39, and allusions all to it, even when the law is not specifically mentioned. To know God, we must be in his presence, in his court of law, we must be perfect. The law must be perfectly obeyed. Only Jesus has done this. You cannot do it, I cannot do it. Jesus alone can do this, and he did this in the place and in the stead as the substitute and representative of the people that he came to redeem. And he also paid the debt, and he is our perfection, and in his obedience and blood and righteousness, in what he achieved on the cross, is the perfect righteousness that you need so that you may stand before God's throne of judgment perfectly righteous in the sight of God. Now that's what the text is telling us. Our sin must be removed. And in being circumcised, we see Jesus coming into the world under the law to redeem those under the law. For Jesus to be circumcised says, I come to obey the law that you sinners have broken. I come to live under its curse. And I come to die in your place for your sins becoming a curse for you so that those who believe in me will never, never, never come under condemnation. Charles Spurgeon said way back in 1857, I read the commandments and I find them strict and awfully severe. Oh, how holy must Christ have been to obey all these for me. Nothing makes me value my Savior more than seeing the law condemn me. Do you see that? Have you ever seen that? That the law of God reflects his character in such a way that all of the perfections of God go out against those who do not have trust and faith in Jesus as the Redeemer. 
Some of you know the story of J. Gresham Machen, who was that famed New Testament scholar who founded Westminster Theological Seminary, who died a very young, young age, really, and he was in the Dakotas on a lecture tour when he developed pneumonia. And as he was dying, he sent a telegram to John Murray, the professor of systematic theology at Westminster Seminary, because Machen and Professor Murray had been discussing, prior to his coming to the Dakotas, this whole issue of the act of obedience of Christ, his obedience to the law of God in the place of sinners as our representative. And so the last recorded words of Professor Machen to Professor Murray in a telegram were these, thank God for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. That's the meaning of the text. There is no hope for sinners apart from the obedience of Christ and the payment of the penalty of our sins. No wonder then the text goes from there in verse 21 to tell us that Jesus is named. And look at it, verse 21, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, He was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So these parents believe the word of God. The angel had said way back in chapter 1, verse 31 to Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. What does Jesus mean? Jesus means Jehovah saves. And that's who this is. The second person of the Trinity, Jehovah, who became a man in order that he might obey the law that you and I broke and pay the penalty by shedding his blood on the cross. Do you know that you need the forgiveness of sins? Have you ever acknowledged yourself to be a sinner? That there is only one who can redeem you and save you from sin. And that is Jehovah, who took upon himself flesh and blood so that the perfect man, the perfect man who also is God, could achieve this great thing for us. You know, it's very strange. We constantly must emphasize the basics. It's a very strange thing that the basics are forgotten by evangelicals right and left today. A Wheaton College professor was recently put on leave for saying that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Well, no. The God of the Bible and Allah are not the same. The one true God of the Bible is the triune God, one God in three persons. God's Son, the second person of the Trinity, came into this world as the only Savior of sinners. And so we preach and proclaim and hold out before you the exclusivity of the gospel. There is no other God, there is no other one who can save, only Jehovah become man can save you from your sins. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The exclusivity of the gospel, only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. And so Jesus' circumcision points to something really great and wonderful, doesn't it? That you and I, born with a corrupt heart, Jesus, as my substitute, did for me what I could never have done and you could never have done. He obeyed the law to perfection and he paid every, every bit of the penalty that you and I owed. 
before the law of God. Then we go on in the text and we see these witnesses, two of them. So the second thing is this, the witness of Simeon. Now the witness of Simeon comes against the backdrop of three ceremonies. The ceremony of purification, of the dedication of the firstborn, and the dedication to God's service. The law of purification was simply this, that the mother of a male was ceremonially unclean for seven days, and then she was confined, and after that she came to the temple and sacrificed a lamb and a turtle dove. If she could not afford, or her family could not offer a lamb, then she was to offer two turtle doves. We read in the text that Joseph and Mary can only offer the offering of the poor. They can only offer the offering of the poor, which reminds us once again of the humiliation of the Son of God right from the start. As our catechism puts it, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of a cross in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. And you know... When the child came, there also was a small redemption fee that was paid. Yes, the Redeemer, for the Redeemer, was paid a redemption fee. For him was paid the small redemption fee that pointed to the ultimate payment of our redemption that would be given when this child grew up and went to a cross and paid the debt. They also came to dedicate Jesus to the Lord, just as we see that Hannah did with Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. Now, it's in this context, then, that we meet Simeon. According to verse 25, he was a godly man. His name means God has heard. And aside from this, we know very little except this. Simeon lived in hope. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. This man, Simeon, waited for the consolation of Israel. The consolation, blessing, comfort, peace are associated in many places in the Old Testament with the coming of the Messiah, especially in the book of Isaiah, as we saw in the reading that Pastor McDonald did for us from Isaiah 40, and we sung in the hymn that opened the service and just before the preaching of the word. Verse 26 tells us that God revealed to Simeon that he would not see death until he had seen the Messiah. So he is led to the temple by the Holy Spirit, God himself orchestrating the meeting. And as the parents walk in with this little baby, Simeon stops them. And he comes over and he takes this baby in his arms and he looks at this baby. How appropriate that God will have testimony to his son as he enters the temple. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that for which the temple stands, all of its sacrifice, all of its ceremony. By the way, a passing remark. You note here that Simeon took Old Testament prophecy seriously. He lived in the hope of the fulfillment of those prophecies. And I sometimes think that we do not. We have, even Bible believers, been influenced by critical views of the Bible, and we do not pay as much attention as we should to the great prophecies of the Old Testament. And that is a shame indeed. 
Because the Messianic promise is there from Genesis 3.15, and the Messianic light shines brighter and brighter as the Old Testament moves us forward to Bethlehem and God's redemption in Christ. And God's redemptive prophetic clock has been ticking louder and louder throughout the Old Testament as we enter into the New. And I think we are only beginning to understand the depth of the Bible as a book of redemptive history and that the critical assumptions have set us back in our task of understanding the Word of God. The text before us calls upon us to believe the Word and to live also with consolation and hope in our hearts as we hang upon the promises that we find in the Old and in the New Testaments, the one Word of God, and to live in light of those things. Franz Delek said beautifully that Christ, through the Old Testament, is in the act of coming. Well, now he has come. And Simeon takes the child, the fulfillment of the prophecies, into his arms, and we have his nunc dimittis. Now may your servant depart in peace. And he praises God. Look at verses 28 and 29. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. He praises. Now he can depart. He has fulfilled his life's calling because until Christians have concluded what God wants us to do, we cannot die. Because he has seen salvation, no wonder he's filled with joy. Don't you find verse 30 very powerful? My eyes have seen your salvation. But what is he looking at? He's looking at a baby. He takes this baby in his arms. He holds this baby. He looks down and he says, do you know what I have here? I look at salvation. I see salvation. I see salvation incarnate. This is salvation that I'm holding in my arms. This is the fulfillment of all of those promises of salvation that we find all through the Old Testament. He's so excited, I'm surprised he didn't drop the baby. But I'm sure he was really clinging hard. After all, it is salvation that he holds. By faith, he looked at this baby and he saw what was really there. Salvation. A salvation prepared by God, not of human achievement. What do you see when you look on Jesus? What do you see with your heart as you hear Jesus preached and proclaimed from this pulpit? or when you read the Word of God. Look in faith and see your Savior. The Savior who, according to verses 31 and 32, has come for Gentile and Jew, prepared by God through this Old Testament, this book of redemptive history, prepared so that he might might bring the light of salvation to the Gentiles, as we read in Isaiah 55, in Isaiah 60, Isaiah 61, and in so many places. And what is most gripping to me, what is most gripping to me is that in verse 32, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, a quotation from Isaiah, from a servant passage of Isaiah, what is most gripping to me is the understanding that this child that he holds in his arms is the servant of Jehovah. The servant of Jehovah, of whom we read so often in Isaiah's prophecy, the most recognizable servant song being the 53rd chapter, surely 
He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Salvation is Israel's glory. Salvation is the light that illumines the darkness of the Gentile world. Associated with the servant in Isaiah, the light and glory will come to us through the servant's sacrifice and blood and sweat and gore and suffering on the cruel cross of Calvary in the place of sinners. No wonder, now may your servant depart in peace. The fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies has arrived. The Messiah has come, the glory of Israel and the Savior of the world. Well, you'd think that would be enough, wouldn't you? What a great thing to learn and to know for Mary to hear that her baby is the Savior of the world. But that's not all. The parents marvel, of course, in verse 33. Who wouldn't? His father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And more is revealed in verses 33 to 35. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed the fall for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What else is revealed? What is revealed is that this baby, who is the savior of Israel and of Gentiles, is set for the falling and rising of many. That's a reference to the stone of stumbling that we read of in Isaiah 8 and 28. The stone of stumbling that is an offense to many. The cornerstone of God's people. And the response you give to Jesus, we are learning here, the response you give to Jesus and his gospel will determine your eternity forever. Reject him. He is appointed for your fall. Trust him. He is appointed that you rise with him. Verse 34 tells us that he is a sign spoken against, and that is still true and applicable today. As A.T. Robertson put it, Jesus is the magnet of the ages. He draws some, he repels others. And Plummer in his great commentary says, Judas despairs, Peter repents. One robber blasphemes, the other confesses. That's the way it will be until Christ comes again. Some will believe and some will not. And in verse 35, we are also told that there would in the process be pain for Mary. She is being prepared for what her son will endure on the cross. The term that is used here in verse 35, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, is the term that is used for the large two-edged broadsword, a Thracian javelin, it sometimes was called. The term is used in the Septuagint of the great sword that was used by Goliath. One day Mary will stand before the cross. Read about it in John 19. She will stand before the cross and she will see her own son, who is God's own son, hang upon a cross and bleed and die 
for the sins of the world. And in verse 35, we are told that many have hostile thoughts against this son, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Dialogismoi means hostile thoughts. The gospel exposes hearts for where they really are. What does the gospel expose in your heart? What does it show in your life? Belief is God's gift or wicked unbelief? The text, along with others, makes something perfectly clear. And I want to make clear as God's minister what the text makes perfectly clear. Don't miss it. The text is saying you cannot be neutral about Jesus Christ. You can think you can be neutral, that it really doesn't matter. He doesn't matter. You hear the word, you shrug it off. You can walk away. You can think to yourself, well, I'm not a believer. I'm not really an unbeliever either. I'll just take what comes on the day of judgment. No, 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 no. You cannot be neutral about Jesus Christ. He is appointed either for your fall or for your rise. He exposes in your heart those those thoughts of wickedness and rebellion for which you need this Redeemer to save you from your awful iniquity. You cannot be neutral about Jesus Christ. You cannot be neutral about the gospel. Either you believe in him or you do not. Either you are on your way to heaven or you are on your way to hell. It is one or the other. You cannot be neutral. But there's another witness. Let's move on. And that third, that second witness, the third point, is the witness of Anna. Anna. Now, Anna means grace. That's what her name means. She was old. She was widowed probably in her 20s. God uses the old, and we do well to listen to that. She was very pious. And one way you see it is that verse 37 tells us that she loved the very precincts of the temple. She loved to worship God. That is a deep and true evidence of godliness. Through her, the Lord brought a prophecy, and we read of that in verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The 400 years of silence has been broken. Looking at Simeon, take Jesus in his arms. She must have joined the group and she comes over and by divine inspiration she thanks and praises God and addresses the crowd about Israel's redemption. And just as Simeon had said that he was holding in his arms the salvation of the world, so also she comes and she proclaims that this is the redemption of Israel. Lutrosin is the word. And the New Testament as a whole makes plain that this redemption is through the blood of Jesus Christ. The child must grow and die as a substitute for his people on the cross. So we read in Hebrews 9.12, by means of his own blood, he secures an eternal redemption, the word she uses here. The day of fulfillment has come. This is a happy day. Do you see it? This is a day filled with joy. Mary, Joseph, they walk in the temple and it is declared by a sovereign God through his messengers, this prophet and prophetess, that Jesus Christ is the Savior and Redeemer of sinners. We find then that Jesus grew physically and in wisdom, perception of God's will. And notice that verse 39 underscores that the law of God is being fulfilled. Verse 39, 
And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now this is truly a wonderful text because it is filled with such great joy and it tells us much about who Jesus is. So let me bring this to conclusion by pointing out maybe three things. First, what do we learn about Jesus in this text? We learn that he was the representative of his people and that as our representative, he obeyed the law that we broke and he was humiliated for us. They had to pay, they had to pay out of their poverty for the day of purification. He was humiliated for us. He was the Messiah, the promised and longed for Christ. He is the Savior. He is the Savior of Jew and Gentile. We learn that he condescended to be a real man, that he might redeem his people from our sins, and that his name is Jesus, which means Jehovah saves. And you need him, don't you? And you need everything about him, don't you? You need his person. You need his work. You need the benefits of what he has achieved and accomplished. You and I need this Savior. But are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? And secondly, let me say this. You travel a veil of tears. Indeed, we do. There are many problems and issues that you will face, many hardships in this world, but we needn't be joyless. How can we miss the awe-filled joy of the passage? Luke begins and ends with worship in the temple. Praise permeates the entire gospel of Luke. We've seen the Magnificat, the Benedictus, the Song of Zechariah, the angels Gloria and Excelsis last week, the Nunc Dimittis, Simeon's song in this passage, rejoicing either as a verb or a substantive, according to A.T. Robertson, is used 22 times in Luke and in Acts. And so we glorify God when we walk joyfully in the midst of the worst of times and the hardest of issues because we have a ground for it. The ground for our joy is the Redeemer has come, Jehovah saves, and I am his. Do you see what I'm saying? All through this gospel written to those of us who have believed and trusted in Christ, no matter what the experience may be, in which we sigh and sometimes we cry and things are hard and things are difficult through it all, there should be an incredible joy because we know the Redeemer. As Thomas Watson said, an uncheerful life is a scandal to the gospel. And Watson didn't mean we never cry or sigh. What he means is what I have just said, that we see in this passage and throughout Luke's gospel this emphasis on joy that should be in the heart of every believer because the angel said that the child that would come would be great joy to all peoples. But finally, let me remind you once again that Jesus is set for the falling and rising of many. Hendrickson says it this way, Jesus is history's watershed, its dividing ridge, Our relation to him is decisive for woe or weal, for bane or blessing. When God's minister calls you by the gospel, he is Christ's ambassador calling you to be reconciled to God. 
It is as if Christ himself stood here and said, come to me for salvation. And so I called you to put your trust completely in Jesus Christ. Someone here, why will you destroy yourself? By refusing the gospel that is proclaimed to you today. Why will you destroy yourself? Why? Why will you perish? Elder Valeni in his class this morning said so marvelously to his class, don't think the Westminster Confession of Faith with its emphasis on predestination relieves you from your personal responsibility. He's absolutely right when he said to his class, you get what you want. You stand before God on the day of judgment, you're not going to be able to say, well, God, you didn't, you didn't elect me. The question will be, did you want salvation? I've never turned anyone away that has. Did you come to Jesus to be saved? I've never, Jesus has never turned anyone away who has come. Did you want Christ? If you had wanted Christ, you would have Christ. This is the total depravity of man. We don't want him. We don't want salvation. I ask, why will you perish knowing that only God can change the heart? And so I uphold before your eyes Christ crucified for sinners, this little baby that came as the Savior, the light for the Gentiles, you sitting here today, spread and diffuse that light by accomplishing redemption on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead. And I will always, by the grace of God, Jeff and I and Joel will always, by the grace of God, hold before you Christ and him crucified for sinners and risen from the dead. Samuel Rutherford, I mentioned him recently, the Scottish commissioner to the Westminster Assembly, uh, had a method of preaching that we would not commend in a homiletics course in seminary. Sinclair Ferguson said he was like a machine gun that was firing from Dan to Beersheba. He was all over the map. But on this occasion when he was preaching to his congregation, by the way, some of you use the loveliness of Christ. That's the same Samuel Rutherford. Very poorly organized sermons, but all these gems in the midst of them, really wonderful gems. Rutherford was preaching on one occasion, and he finally got back round to the cross, and one of his elders, sitting way in the back, said, Hold there, minister, you're all right there. Well, I'm going to hold there. I'm determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. To preach Christ and him crucified is the goal of the gospel minister. Salvation in his name is held out this morning. There is no other atonement for sins. There is no one else that can remove your guilt. There is no one other than Jesus that can cleanse your heart from sin. There is no one else who has obeyed the law for sinners. There is no one but Jesus whose blood has infinite value so that it can save the worst sinner who comes to him. His blood is of infinite value and can save the most hardened sinner. And so I say to you, come to him. Come. Come in faith to him. Do not wait. Come. Come to this, to this Savior who was circumcised, who was, who was obedient to the law, who did what you could not do, who paid the penalty on the cross, come to Jesus. Come. Come this morning. Come and put your trust in him. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. 
to which God's people add, Amen.